when I got to the archives, uh, quite frankly, I was totally baffled by how much conspiracy there was in, in all of these organizations that I was reading, um, in the newsletters that I was reading. And I really couldn't figure out, one, what were they talking about? I, mm-hmm. I could not make much sense of that. And then two, why wasn't anybody else talking about what these women were talking about? Because it's all they were talking about. Welcome to Unladylike. I'm your host, Kristen Conger. I'm so happy it has been a minute, friends. The podcast has been on a bit of a hiatus since early spring, in case you didn't know. And I got to tell you, I was a bit flummoxed at first, thinking about where to even begin. How do we even catch up on everything. You can't see me, but I am gesturing my my arms at all of this. I mean, do we start with anti-abortion? Do we start with transphobia run amok? Don't say gay. White Christian nationalism. How about girlies on TikTok insisting that feminism simply conned women out of the plush stay-at-home hashtag housewife life? Then I thought, why don't we start with something that all of those dumpster fires have in common? And that is conspiracy theories. Specifically, conspiracy theories centered around and spread by women. Now, not everyone who is out to allegedly save girls' sports or shut down abortion clinics or protest vaccinations would identify as conspiracy theorists. I mean, probably most of them wouldn't, but these panics and backlashes to so-called woke culture are really just a giant Venn diagram of conspiracy theories— Conspiracy theories that a trans agenda is being foisted upon children. Conspiracy theories that an abortion industrial complex with piles of money is out to force people to terminate pregnancies against their will. Conspiracy theories that liberal elites are all just sex traffickers and pedophiles. Or how about that the COVID vaccine renders teen girls infertile as part of a plan to depopulate the earth? I mean, again, where, where do we even start? Now, at this point, I need to give y'all a little bit of a backstory because in case you can't tell, yeah, I've been thinking about conspiracy theories a lot and for a while now. So... It all started for me at the start of the pandemic when a longtime acquaintance, a a casual friend, let's say, I ran into her and while socially distanced, she kind of out of the blue informed me that Joan Rivers, yes, that Joan Rivers, was murdered by the Obama deep state with help from the Clintons. 
I thought she was joking at first. Then she mentioned Ghislaine Maxwell and how she was quote-unquote just asking questions, and I realized she was not. I fled the scene and spent, mm, give or take, the next two years (laughs) trying to figure out how I'd come face-to-face with QAnon culture and the bigger question I'm always, always asking on Unladylike and just constantly, which is, what do women have to do with this? Obviously, women were really being drawn into the QAnon sphere, but something felt different. Now, I'll go ahead and spoil it. The answer to what a woman have to do with today's conspiracy theory avalanche is a lot. And it started with the Illuminati. Now, hear me out. This is not a Beyonce joke, I swear. In conspiracy circles, the Illuminati was basically the original, made-up, evil cabal of powerful elites out to destroy white Christian civilization. Think any Tucker Carlson monologue you'd hear today. And who lit that fire of that cabal conspiracy theory a century ago? Only the grand dame of modern conspiracy theory herself, Nesta H. Webster, along with her sister in anti-Semitism, Edith Starr Miller, who also went by Lady Queensborough. And yes, I, I hear myself, I hear how absurd that sounds. Grand dame of modern conspiracy theory, what? Not my words, those are conspiracy theory historians who have called Nesta H. Webster the grand dame. And Edith Starr Miller, I mean, I don't know what the fuck was up with the Lady Queensborough, and I really don't care to find out because these women had really hateful ideas that they spread around in the post-World War I era, and those ideas are still wreaking havoc today. They were basically the ideological foremothers of far-right groups, including the infamous John Birch Society here in the U.S. And they are also just one stunning example of the very active roles women, particularly white women, which we will get into, the roles women have played in conspiracy culture ever since. And that we never, we never hear about. And (laughs) like today's guest, y'all heard at the top of the show, it left me wondering, like, why isn't anybody else talking about what women have been talking about for so long in terms of conspiracy theories? Like me, Dr. Aaron Kempker did not set out to fall down a conspiracy theory rabbit hole. It was all it was all a part of work, right? Isn't that how we justify awkward Google search histories? It's for work. <laughs> Aaron is a women's historian and professor at Mississippi University for Women and author of the book Big Sister. Feminism, Conservatism, and Conspiracy in the Heartland. It is essentially a nonfiction, unladylike 
thriller. It's got it all. 1970s second wave feminism, the race to pass the Equal Rights Amendment in Indiana, which would become the final state to do so before anti-feminists shut it down, and with help, it turns out, from conspiracy theories. The question that Erin set out to answer while she was writing her dissertation was, okay, I'm in Indiana, and I'm curious how the Equal Rights Amendment passed after a lengthy fight in a state like Indiana, which is predominantly white and conservative. She wanted to know how the feminists pushed it over the line. And what Erin discovered once she headed off to the library like any good historian, made her way back to the archives and started sifting through piles of women's newsletters, pamphlets, anti-feminist, anti-equal rights amendment propaganda, she quickly ran into almost QAnon-esque kinds of conspiracy vibes about this global cabal that's seeking to strip away our feminine difference and privileges and turn us all into sexless robots who all wear very drab clothes that the government issues to us because this is also a dystopian socialist nightmare that is definitely on its way and the Trojan horse that it's arriving in is called the Equal Rights Amendment. And those pants-wearing feminists are all just government pawns here to turn our children gay. Okay, now I am heavily paraphrasing, which means I I I need to just throw to the doctor, to the good doctor, Aaron Kempker. I have to give you the quick backstory of the way that I found you. Okay, yeah, I'm curious. (laughs) So... You wrote a book called Big Sister, Feminism, Conservatism, and Conspiracy in the Heartland. And it was actually a couple of years ago that I first ran across your name and your book in a piece in the Atlantic Magazine about uh, celebrity pregnancy truthers. (laughs) Yes! Benedict Cumberbatch. (laughs) Yes. Oh, my gosh. I mean, that's a whole other... I could talk to you for a whole other half hour just about Meghan Markle's maybe bump. But um, I won't derail us. But uh, I wanted to bring that up because what you said in that piece has stuck with me ever since. And I'm going to go ahead and say it. It it basically inspired this episode. (laughs) So I'm going to also quote you back to you. Um, okay. <laughs> That's good because I probably don't remember what I said. Well, uh, it, was, so. it was a while ago. <laughs> so you made the point. There hasn't been much focused study on women in conspiracy theory belief. I think there's a perception that it's a largely male world. I didn't find that to be the case. I would say we need to rethink the stereotype. And I was so excited to read that because I was like, all right. Yeah, yeah. Hey, wait. I think, why why does there seem to be this gender gap? So, why, bigger picture question, why have women been 
largely ignored in conspiracy research? You know, I, I really, I think it's a great question too, Kristen. I'm going to, I'm going to try to give you some answers, but I, I guess my first answer would be, I don't know either. Um, and so I, I've got some thoughts as to what might be going on. Um, first, I think, I think I would point to the idea that some of the women that, that I focus on, especially those 1950s, 60s, and 70s women, they strongly identified uh, with the status of a stay-at-home mom. And they were quite comfortable um, in that identity. And they, they were strongly committed to it. And for that reason, they supported men in their lives and they supported men's decisions in their lives. And, and I'll give you one example here, Marguerite Dice. Um, that's the, the woman who literally put the men in the room, in her room, her home um, there in the suburbs of Indianapolis to create uh, with Robert Welch, the uh, John Birch Society, which is a very important right-wing conspiratorial organization that's born in 1958. Uh, Marguerite Dice is almost never mentioned in any founding of the John Birch Society, despite the fact that she has a very long history of white, white right, <clears throat> right-wing and really uh, white nationalist politics. Um, and and she's just completely erased. And if she's mentioned at all, she's mentioned as sort of like the hostess, you know, who who, who really brings the men um, refreshments. And I'm not entirely sure Marguerite Dice would have been unhappy with that characterization. I think she was so deeply invested in, in that idea of, um, you know, women having a role to play in supporting men that that I, I don't know that she really was seeking a spotlight in that, though I do think and I do suspect that they wanted at least some appreciation from men for their activism and their participation and the power that they brought to the movement. So I do think their particular sort of interpretation and understanding of gender might help play a role in that and that they saw themselves as supportive of others in their lives, and, uh, but but definitely behind the scenes operators. Um, now that said, that's that's just you know purely you know speculative on my part because the the reality is that um, I I really don't know why nobody else was talking much about this or why people aren't talking about this. So it was really confusing, and I'll be honest, I wrestled with that for about ten years. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. I I, I finished my PhD in two thousand and eight, but the book wasn't published until twenty eighteen, and. I, I just didn't see that much conversation going on about all of this conspiracy. Um, and finally, I just, I just, I mean, I, there was, I had no, there were certainly some scholars talking about it. It seemed really central to me. It wasn't just like, you know, a couple of women doing this. It seemed like the point, you know, mm -hmm. this is what they were talking about is these interlocking conspiracies. And so, I went ahead with with my, you know, with my book um, without really knowing about what others were going to be saying about it. And then I'll be honest, I think it was the 2016 election when Trump and then conspiracy just, you know, came straight out of um, uh, it was in the mainstream. And since then, it's it's now been the reverse of that. Now, where was all of that? But, you know, much of the time I was preparing the book, it was it was sort of trying to figure out. Am I the only one seeing this or one of the few people that are, you know, that are seeing this? Um, and I don't know. I, I don't have an answer for that one. It was certainly everywhere uh, in the archives that I was looking at. And um, it took some time, you know, to try to figure out 
what was going on. Because of course, you know, anytime you start reading conspiracy, it's so bizarre. Like you were talking about the Benedict, (laughs) like, you know, it just comes at you like a floodgate and it never lets up, you know, it's constantly morphing. And then then there are these, you know, sub conspiracies and it's just to the uninitiated. I mean, it's just, I don't know how to explain it except it's just bizarre and baffling. Okay. When Aaron was just describing how, reading up on a bunch of conspiracy theory stuff can make you start to feel like the conspiracy theorist. Whew, I I felt that. I've been there. <laughs> this episode is doing it to me. So I feel seen, and I'm going to bask in that validation for a hot second while we take a quick break. I'm back with women's historian Erin Kempker, who is about to get into the wild weeds of 1970s anti-feminist conspiracy theories. If that's not a Jeopardy category, it should be. Blossom, are you listening? Could you um, explain a little bit of what, what you mean by conspiracy, like the kind of the general brand of conspiracy that you were seeing in all of this archival material? There are a lot of different organizations that you can look at. Um, and I read their newsletters. They're, they're prolific writers, um, and they're reading a lot. They're, they're sharing reviews of books. They're sharing information with each other in their newsletters. Um, and so I, I read those. And the kinds of conspiracy things that I was seeing, um, they were very concerned about any initiative um, started by the United Nations. So um, any kind of UNESCO or United Nations campaign, especially that involved children, um, was constantly being watched. They were also very concerned about the National Educators Association and teachers slipping subliminal messages into, um, into curriculum or even less conspiratorial and just more concerned about a sort of a secular drift um, or a progressive agenda Uh, being pushed by um, teachers, particularly. Uh, A a lot of these folks were already starting to advocate for things like homeschool. Um, It sounds sounds very familiar. Yes. A lot of this, you know, it has a deep history. It goes back some time. And, you know, they could argue against the United Nations being too cozy with communists. And then in the next sentence say, you know, the United Nations um, had already been taken over by communists. And then later on in the same newsletter, the United Nations um, was part of uh, a trend or part of the conspiracy of uh, globalists, you know, to turn us all into one world zombies. None of those to them were competing ideas, even Mm -hmm. though those aren't the same ideas at all. You know, those ideas didn't compete. It was just this sense that the United Nations was bad. Um, So you may or may not, it's like a spectrum of belief on the United Nations, you know, maybe you just don't like that the United Nations is cozy with uh, communists, they're okay with that. Or if you are on the further end that believe they are one worldists, you know, pushing world government, and they've already taken over, you know, the US federal government, that's all right, too, because, you know, you're still, you're still represented. So there was that kind of belief. There were things in the, they would report that the United Nations had taken over American cities. Um, 
goodness, there was the idea that there was some legislation. They were constantly watching state legislation. There was legislation in Alaska to support mental health programs. That was the Siberia USA um, uh, sort of conspiracy that, in fact, that it looks innocuous. Alaska is supporting mental health in 1955. But um, according to Minute Women, uh, this started in California. That was the creation of a gulag that was going uh, to be used to imprison, you know, uh, right-wing political thinkers. Mm. Um, there was already this trend of associating mental health experts with potentially globalists and progressives. So, you know, that bill became connected to um, this idea of persecution of the right. So, you know, Siberia, USA was a whole campaign in the mid-1950s. So, you know, you open up a newsletter in the archives. And this is the kind of messages, you know, that that you read and the kind of ideas that you're reading. This is this is what the ladies were chatting about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like this is this is just a normal, you know, week. And, you know, it was it was really hard to understand. Did they believe what they were saying? Was this just kind of thrilling? You know how to understand that? So according to this brand of right-wing conspiracy, what was the Equal Rights Amendment and feminism actually? You know, I think, um, depending on who you asked, of course, Kristen, Mm -hmm. and I think they were certainly, the more politically savvy women were trying to target their audience to message. So they wouldn't come at you maybe with the full-blown, um, mm, mm-hmm. this is a one-world government conspiracy. But uh, on that spectrum, again, of, of total conspiracy belief down to just maybe a criticism of federal overreach, uh, the Equal Rights Amendment um, was considered by some to be part of a global conspiracy of the United Nations to sort of insert itself into the inner workings of local communities and and really on that issue of gender, transform sort of personal relationships between men and women and within families. Um, It was supposed to be um, or was considered to be um, the, if not the first step in this global conspiracy, it was part of that global conspiracy, which may have been going back all the way to the 1950s. And some people even pushed it back to the 1920s, um, depending on the conspiracy that you're talking about. But it was this idea that because it was supported by the United Nations, it was part of the United Nations, you know, decade of women celebration. That's why the United States created the International Women's Year. And the Equal Rights Amendment was considered part of that idea. That just like feminists want to eliminate the difference between men and women, they want to make us all same sex, so-called gender sameness, Mm -hmm. so too does the world government conspiracy want to strip us of nationalism and strip us of any sort of um, uh, religious tradition. It's this this secularized, um, universalist understanding uh, that they're trying to turn patriotic Christian um, stay-at-home mothers into, you know, unisex cogs in a world government system. It sounds crazy um, to most, 
But if you came of age through that anti-communist sort of Armageddon, really, uh, sort of apocalyptic, really, rhetoric of the Cold War, um, getting ready to fight the Mm. atheistic communists and getting ready for the end of the world, this doesn't seem that different. You know, it's it's like a shift. The atheistic communists, it turns out, weren't the, the end goal. They were just one part of this global, you know, uh, globalist um, conspiracy. So for those folks, it doesn't seem as wild as it does to, you know, the uninitiated. But that's how they saw feminism as as part of this, you know, battle between good and evil. Um, whether feminists understood it doesn't matter, then they were at best dupes. Right. Um, but at worst, they were in league with Either these this cabal of globalists or other times the the Satanists because the Antichrist also looms over all of that as well. So it, you could be it's just a globalist. You could be you know in league with Satan. Again, we're not even gonna we're not even gonna you know really disagree about that. We can agree that we don't agree, and then we're gonna move right on. But you're our enemy either way. Um, so so it doesn't really allow for much compromise, Kristen. <laughs> There's not a whole lot of working across that line, as you might imagine. I do think, and I write about this in the book, I think it was empowering. There's, mm-hmm. There is definitely something empowering to thinking that you are in the know and feeling quite knowledgeable about something. Just that, just that feeling that comes with, you know, the research, that the so-called research that they were doing on this. And they were, they were getting the congressional record. They were scouring it for any word like collective, you know, and then they would reprint that, you know, that these people said collective, you know, which was important to them. Um, or, you know, they, they said the word, you know, um, collectivism or, or, or uni- um, unification or consolidation, you know, any of these words that might signal this sort of uh, condensing of power into a smaller unit. They they really feared any of that centralization. Um, and it was powerful for them. So I think, you know, not having power in one aspect, aspect of their lives might have affected their desire to gain power, you know, through conspiracy belief. And as women who probably had young children and were stay at home, their access to um, information was limited, but they were using everything they had Seeing their ideas in print would be a powerful thing, too, so that that Mm. their ideas could be printed and circulated and other people would talk about them. I think that's a powerful motivator as well. Um, So I I think more work needs to be done, but it's pretty clear that they felt um, empowered by this belief and that they were they were getting something from it more than just their fear. You know what I mean? Of, mm-hmm. of changes in the economy. There was something happening there that that made this feel good and right. Oh, it's just like that Eurythmic song. Sisters doing it for themselves, right? <laughs> Let's take a quick break. <laughs> uh... I'm back with women's historian, Dr. Erin Kempker. And next up, 
you might want to take some notes because while these anti-feminists in the 70s were peddling a lot of harmful shit that still resonates today, they really knew how to make a misinformation machine. So there's been, especially in 2020 and since, there's been more attention paid to the role of social media and women spreading, like, QAnon conspiracies in particular. yes, yes. And reading those stories, like, a lot of times, at least the headline framing is like, oh, wow, like, women are doing this wild thing and, like, using technology to (laughs) spread information, but they make it look aesthetically pleasing to Uh, some people on Instagram, you know? Mm -hmm. And, which is, which is not, which is not wrong. Like that was happening. Right. But in the, but then when I, I read these kind this historical context and, you know, you, you mentioned a few times, like how good they were working the phones and like phone trees and even just now doing, you know, (laughs) Today, like, instead of a control find, they were the control find having to go through all the documents. Yes, that's so, so true. They were the control find. And they were so good. Like you said, the telephone. They they made sophisticated telephone trees. Um, Yeah, they didn't even need necessarily to leave their houses to meet. They had, like, the Minute Women had telephone trees. They would call one another and, and sort of like the game telephone tell one another what they had been told. So in case they couldn't meet, they could still communicate with one another. I mean, there would not be a breakdown in the system. Somebody would not be left out because that was all part of how they organized with the telephone. Um, They used the John Birch Society. And this wasn't just women, but women absolutely were active in the John Birch Society and instrumental in the John Birch Society. They had the Let Freedom Ring campaign where they just left telephone numbers. They posted them all over town. And they would just like drop them on the street, you know, like literally a telephone number or they'd put it up as graffiti and people would call the number and there would be a pre-recorded message and the message would change weekly. And, you know, one week it would be an anti-civil rights message. And then the next week it would be, you know, about the war in Vietnam. And then the next week it would be about the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, but so once you had that number, you could call and get this information and it would change on a weekly basis. Um, they operated bookstores. Uh, women owned and operated bookstores with the John Birch Society. And, and, they, and like I said, they hosted people into their homes. They, they found and were uh, using technology, the technology of their time, as well as anyone. There's no doubt. And, and to think that women are not part of this conspiracy, it, it's just a blind spot when it comes to women's history. You know, I, 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 and I suspect because of the hypermasculinity of people like Alex Jones and that sort of performative, you know, uh, masculinity and the idea that, you know, they're talking about all of them and, and trying to market this kind of uh, survivalist uh, merchandise and different things like that. I, I do think that there continues to be this association with men and conspiracy, but women's historians like myself, I'm not the only one by any means but have, have have had for some time now been looking at this and, and we can definitely say women are definitely in this world. Participants, active participants in this, coming up with their own, you know, conspiracy beliefs. And that's certainly true of the 20th century. Yeah, it's, it's not exactly the kind of gender equality we might, you know, envision, <laughs> but it's there. <laughs> it's <laughs> well, that's just the thing. You know, we we tend to think of women, and, and I think there's this stereotype still that women act as angels in the machinery. 
Mm-hmm. And that women's politics is somehow inherently more progressive than men's. And it's just not true. Um, women have been part of, you know, fascist movements around the world. And in the United States, um, Kathleen Blee uh, and her work have shown us all of the ways in which women were instrumental in the Klan. Um, and there was the women's Klan. So women are not synonymous with progressive women's uh, politics is not synonymous. And I, I think we have to really complicate and muddy the water when it comes to what we mean by women's politics, because they don't agree. Right. And I was, I mean, that leads perfectly to the question of, in this case, like what women are we talking about? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, you also mentioned groups like the Ku Klux Klan, like mm-hmm. are, are we talking specifically about white women? Mm-hmm. Largely, I think I was looking at white women, largely, Mm -hmm. um, but not exclusively on either side. Certainly, there were women of color in the feminist camp, although women of color were also reporting problems that they were and difficulties they were having um, with getting um, initiatives that they felt strongly about on uh, the agenda in feminist organizations. And the Women's Political Caucus is one of those where you see that conversation playing out. Um, On the right wing side, Uh, Yes, largely white women, but not exclusively white women. And there's been a little bit of work done on her, but, you know, that's, you know, her life and experience. I mean, and then you have modern day examples, you know, of uh, women, um, right wing women who sort of take up the cause as well. Um, And so I think, um, is it Kathy Barnett would be? Uh, the woman who recently ran for the Senate in Pennsylvania um, mm. and others that I think like the experiences of right wing women, black women um, is critically under-researched and I would like to know more about them. Do you have any sense of whether left wing conspiracy theories we're influencing women on like feminists on the pro ERA side, mm-hmm. because the one thing that I have been wrestling with a lot of how to responsibly talk about and frame conspiracy belief is the fact that we're all susceptible. We're all highly susceptible to them. It's yeah. not like they're, you know, it's, it's just indicative of someone being right wing. Um, and I was just curious if that on the other side, I mean, I, I doubt there was like global cabals of Satan worshipers, you know, no, hanging no. out. But uh, if there was any of that happening within the feminist movement that you're aware of. Yeah, it's a hard thing because mostly what I'm looking at is right wing conspiracy belief. And I don't see um women in like, for example, the Hoosiers for the Equal Rights Amendment, mm-hmm. <laughs> when you open up their records, you don't see conspiracy belief. They're not talking about, um, you know, um, well, they're not talking about, they're not talking about any kind of conspiracies that I have seen. That said, you have to be very careful because um, you're right in that conspiracy belief is very prevalent in the United States and on the right and on the left. But the difference is that is the exact nature of the conspiracy beliefs um, differ. So they don't believe in the same conspiracies, mm-hmm. <laughs> but they believe in conspiracies. Um, and so 
this particular issue, I, I cannot say generally, you know, that this would be the case, but on this particular issue, it, it zeroed in on a right-wing fear, world government, um, collectivism, and this idea that gender particularly is ordained by God. So any kind of initiative to challenge gender difference um, really brought down um, fire and brimstone for them. That that was something that was very uh, part of their, their religious understanding. And that also connected to, because of the way that the Cold War had played out, um, you know, really since World War II, that really connected to this idea of uh, family life and structure as well. And this idea of, um, you know, I, I, I don't want to oversimplify things, but that communists believed in abortion and they believed in men and women, women's equality. And that in the United States, um, we believed in gender difference and uh, families and male breadwinners and women as stay-at-home wives. Um, and that was the 1950s American dream, by golly. And, you know, everyone has a right to live it. And so um, there was that sense that whether intentionally or not, feminists were challenging that and were in league with this um, dangerous cabal of, of not only the globalists, but like I said, the Satanists. So it really did provoke that issue, really provoked a firestorm storm on the right. Um, on other ideas, I think they would be a little bit more um, crossover between the right and the left. So um, health food was a big concern for a lot of the women that I was looking at um, and the John Birch Society, especially. They were really interested in additives. I mean, obviously, everybody knows about the fluoridation, but um, yeah, they were really interested in like additives in food and um the John Birch Society at one point was really pushing the idea that um, Laetrile would cure cancer. So some of that stuff was, you know, really alternative medicines and things like that. I think you would see a lot more <laughs> convergence maybe on the left with some of that. Um, I mean, also what you're, <laughs> my jaw's dropping because as what I'm hearing you also describe sounds so much like the, the, current day Venn diagram of conspiracy in the like wellness, health, and then like fringing off into both left and right wing. Yes. Uh, and into like deep Christian nationalism and white supremacy where it's like, oh my God, they were, they were worried about health food too. <laughs> what is happening? Yeah. It's, it's not, I, I don't know if this is helpful to anyone, but it's not really new. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's been there for you know, at least since the 1970s. I, I don't, I don't know if that helps or hurts. Do you know what I mean? It's, but it's not really new. Now I do think the internet has changed a lot about how they're connecting, but like we talked about, they found ways to connect before and they were incredibly innovative when it comes to that. And here's a final twist. I, asked Erin a little bit earlier about whether she ran into any conspiracy theories within the second wave feminist groups that her dissertation and her book focused on. And she did not in her research, but I did. <laughs> I did get this for an ironic question mark twist. When 
the effort to ratify the ERA failed. It was extremely disruptive and demoralizing for the feminist movement at the time. This would have been in the late 70s. Some folks within the movement blamed the ERA's failures on a government conspiracy in the form of infiltration by the CIA and FBI into the feminist movement to destroy it from within. The fact of the matter is the FBI did spy on second wave feminist groups and did send out women to infiltrate and take notes and keep abreast of what was happening, but it wasn't part of any diabolical plot to detonate the ERA. I mean, really, it's kind of a sexist accusation because the people who fucked the ERA were women. They were women. And what gets even gnarlier is that the environment of paranoia and infighting happening within the second wave movement and this idea that they were being infiltrated by imposters sent from what the most patriarchal agency of all, the FBI. This dovetailed with what we now call TERFs, trans-exclusionary radical feminists. It only fed into the transphobia that was already becoming problematic within lesbian separatist factions and also mainstream the more mainstream factions. And if you want to know more, there's a whole episode all about it over on the Unladylike Patreon, patreon.com slash unladylikemedia. And if you want even more conspiracy theory, good news, because there's gonna be a part two. Yeah, I, you know, we, we couldn't, we can't only stay in the past. We gotta bring it up to the present. We've got to face those dumpster fires of today. And I'm going to do that next week with help from misinformation TikToker and researcher whose conspiracy chart you've probably seen, Abby Richards, and also returning icon and friend of the pod, Bridget Todd. I did not mean to make that rhyme, but I'm just going to leave it as is. And finally, thank you to Dr. Erin Kempker, Her book, Big Sister, Feminism, Conservatism, and Conspiracy in the Heartland is, again, the nonfiction unladylike thriller of the year. And y'all, I would love to hear from you. Unladylike is back. And what what do y'all want to hear about? What should we talk about? Get in touch. And also, of course, I mean, if you have conspiracy theory thoughts, send them my way. Hello at unladylike.co is the email address. You can also follow Unladylike and get in touch on social at Unladylike Media. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and yes, even the TikTok at Unladylike Media. 
Unladylike is a Starburns audio production. Rebecca Steinberg is our senior producer. Catherine Caligori is our associate producer. Engineering and post-production is by Ali Naku. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. I am your host and executive producer, Kristen Conger of Unladylike Media. Aaron, I have one last question for you that I ask all our Unladylike guests. What is the most unladylike thing about you? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's got to be the cussing. But the first title of this book was To Hell with the ERA. Uh-huh. And when I went to interview the conservative women, they let me know that, like, under no circumstances was that acceptable. Like, they, that, that was off limits. And, um, you know, I, I, of course, thought it was clever because, you know, to hell with the ERA, to hell with the era, both was true. You know, mm-hmm. like, they could get on board with both of no, they didn't get on board with that at all. Um, so, yeah. No, the cussing all around. The cussing all around. is In the Midwest, cussing is not considered that bad. You know? I don't find that people really look twice at you for cussing too much. But, yeah. In, in, in other circles, in the rarefied circles, yeah. No, you, you can't get away with that. So, yeah. Cussing is my most unladylike behavior. I'm hanging on to that one. Um, Perfect. Yeah. Starbucks Audio, a podcast, <clears throat> a podcast network.